This sermon was recorded at the Midtown Congregation of Redeemer Fellowship, a church that exists to cultivate communities of transformed disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of the city. For more information, visit RedeemerKansasCity.org. Scripture reading this morning is from Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. That's found on page 809 of your Pew Bibles. And again, Matthew 5, verses 1 through 12. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Good morning. Let's pray. Father, we receive your word this morning. We thank you for your word, and we ask that you would bring a spirit of revelation upon your word as we open it together. This morning, would you be pleased to manifest your presence among us? Would you work among us? Would you enlighten the eyes of our understanding? God, would you compel our hearts? Would you set out a vision for us of a life ordered around the things that you say are good and right and valuable and whole and lead to ultimate satisfaction? God, even in the places where these things cut against the grain of so much of what we've already taken in and ingested as to what will bring us wholeness, Spirit of God, I ask that you would do what you love to do this morning. By the power of your word, would you come and drive a wedge into the deepest places of our hearts and separate that which is good and lasting and true and whole from that which is failing and faulty and disordered. God, would you shine a light into each of us this morning? God, for our good and for your glory. God, we love you. We love your ways. We want to be a people that is marked by your ways. Would you make us those that embody the things that are most true about your kingdom. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we're beginning 
actually now in the text of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, the third week into our series. Uh, this morning, what I want to do for us is provide a, an overview of the text that you heard read, which are commonly referred to as the Beatitudes. These are eight statements of blessedness that Jesus begins this teaching with, this portrait of a life oriented around what he calls valuable and good, begins with these eight statements about blessedness, what it means to uh, be in a a state of blessedness. So we're going to talk about uh, what these beatitudes are, how they function within the sermon, and then my prayer is to begin this morning uh, looking at the first of these eight markers as the chief or the foundational beatitude and begin to work our way through them together. So look with me at the introduction here. This is just by way of review. I, I, I hope after our time in the Sermon on the Mount, these are kind of things that you can say, uh, like wake you up from a sleep and you can say them because you've heard them so many times. But the Sermon on the Mount is the most comprehensive teaching we have in the scripture that portrays uh, what a, a life ordered around cooperating with God's grace looks like. The Sermon on the Mount is not contrary to the grace of God. It is not contrary to the teaching of the forgiving power of God's grace made known in Christ Jesus. This is a portrait of what it looks like for those who have joined themselves to Jesus in faith to orient and order their lives around what Jesus calls valuable in partnership with the grace of God made known in in, in Christ. So to pursue a life that's built around obedience to these things we've seen uh, is, is to build our life in such a way that we have sure and sturdy foundations that will not shake in times of trial and testing. This is a picture of a life in partnership with the grace of God, centered around the things that he calls valuable, the things that stand in the way of that pursuit and the practices that order our hearts to position ourselves to receive his grace more. Letter C, Jesus invites us to intentionally order our lives around these teachings. It's not enough to hear these words and accept them. We are invited to obey them through intentionally pursuing them. Look at letter F. Jesus' message in the Sermon on the Mount can be some ways stated as like the charter of the new creation people who have been welcomed into his kingdom. Uh, as, as we've been joined to Jesus by faith, we have been brought into a new citizenship, a new kingdom. Paul says it in Colossians chapter one, you've been taken out of the domain of darkness and transferred into a new kingdom, the kingdom of the beloved son. The Sermon on the Mount is like the charter for the new humanity that live in the kingdom of God. So what are these beatitudes, the values of God's kingdom? The Sermon on the Mount begins with Jesus's statement about the value system of the kingdom of heaven. Every single culture, society, or kingdom throughout history has a set of values that undergird its concepts of what it means to be successful or what provides you worth within that uh, society. These 
ideas of what gives you value or what makes you successful. They are embodied and embedded in practices that we all do as a culture. And they're oftentimes given as symbols or artifacts that we take on as status symbols within our culture. You can think about it this way uh, in ours. Money often functions as this kind of reality, right? We could say, blessed are the wealthy, right? In our culture, we have a portrait that there is satisfaction and fulfillment and wholeness that comes from attaining a certain status financially or a certain status within your vocation or a certain status with, uh, with regards to your freedom and your liberty to travel on the weekends and all that kind of stuff, right? Like we have these tacit ideas of what it means to live a whole or a full life. And those things get embodied in practices that we, we, we do as a society, These symbols and values can be excavated or understood by looking at the prevailing ways that people understand success and worth. Said differently, how does a society think that you will attain fulfillment? We excavate these values by what does the society around us, what does the culture tell us will make us whole people, happy people, full people? And they're expressed in what we give our lives away to pursuing. How do you spend your time and your money and your resources that God has given you, right? How does a society spend its time, energy, resources? What does it take and orient those things towards attaining and laying hold of? The kingdom of heaven is no different. Jesus declares that there are qualities that are metrics of success, you could say, in the kingdom of heaven. These are marked by the statements at the beginning of this teaching as embodying a state of blessedness before God. So another way that you could talk about ideas of satisfaction or fulfillment, or maybe like is saying, what is the good life? What makes you whole? What is the attainment of a life worth living. That's what Jesus is getting at in the Beatitudes. He's portraying from the heart of God. Remember we talked about last week, Emmanuel himself, God in the flesh, going up and opening his mouth. He is inviting us to see what is valuable in his kingdom. What matters? What will actually make you whole and fulfilled and satisfied as a human being made in his image. That's what he's teaching here. Look at the top of page two. As humans, we are hardwired to orient our lives around what we believe will provide us the most true and lasting fulfillment. Let me tell you something about the way that you work on the inner, inner parts of your being. Whatever conscripts your imagination as to what you think will satisfy you the most, you are hardwired to order your life around that. If you think that's comfort, 
If you think that's ease, if you think it's money, if you think it's status, if you think it's relationships, whatever that is, you will order your life around getting it and getting as much of it as you can. It's how God made you. You can't uh, change that about yourself. God hardwired you to see something as providing you fullness and wholeness and to turn all of your resources to try to get that. Now, the problem is in sin and in brokenness, we think really, uh, uh, really hollow things will provide that for us. Jeremiah says it this way in the early chapters of his prophecy. He says, you run after broken cisterns that can't hold water. What he's saying is you're thirsty. That's part of who you are. But what you do is you go and you build these cisterns to hold water, but they're problematic. They're broken, meaning they're, they're really bad quality. And when it comes down to it, they can't even hold the water. This is what we do in sin, right? So we're all hardwired this way. What do you think will provide you satisfaction, wholeness, fulfillment, joy, contentment, whatever you want to put there? You will run after that. You will spend time and energy and money and resources to lay hold of that and get it. That's what we see here. The eight beatitudes of of the Sermon on the Mount, it operate, therefore, like invitations to holding and embodying the things that are truly great in God's economy, in God's kingdom. They're like fruits that we must cultivate by the grace of God in partnership with the Spirit's activity in our life. They're supernatural gifts that are given to us and they're grown as we position ourselves to relate to the Lord in a spirit of obedience. Letter G, these eight fruits are the litmus test for our growth in grace and godliness. In many ways, these are the measure of our real and true impact in the kingdom of God. I want you to actually let this sink in for a second. If you want to know what is the standard of quote-unquote success in the kingdom of heaven, saturate your mind with these eight things. I, uh, I had the privilege of talking to a church planter maybe six or seven months ago. I think I fried his wires a little bit. We're having a conversation. We, 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 we were maybe three seconds into the conversation. And he goes, hey, 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 okay, I've been at it for a year. You've been, you've been doing this a little while what's your number one tip for a young church planter? And I go, don't let anyone tell you that anything outside of the eight beatitudes being cultivated in your people is success. doesn't matter how many people there are. doesn't matter how alive your services feel. It doesn't matter how many likes you get on Instagram, how cool your feed looks. It doesn't matter at all. If these things aren't getting cultivated in your people, it is hollow. And he goes, whoa. <laughs> he literally said, I thought you were going to tell me to like have better coffee or something. Uh, he went, whoa. 
But this is, if we're looking for the standard of God's heart for what he longs to see cultivated in the hearts of his people, these eight things, we need to go no farther than that. And not only how we see them develop in us, but how we are calling others to walk in them. Matthew 5, 19, Jesus says, those that do these things and teach them will be greatest in the kingdom. He does not say those that have the biggest platforms or the most success or all these people coming around them. It doesn't matter how big your impact is. He says, it matters how much these things are being cultivated in your soul and how much you're calling others to do the same. That could be one other person, two other pers- people. However God has given you, the size of it doesn't matter. The scope of it doesn't matter. What God cares about is are you actively seeking to pursue these things, lay hold of them by his grace, and call others around you to walk in them as well? Don't look anywhere else, anywhere else. Don't let any other vision of what it means to be quote-unquote successful fill your mind or captivate your imagination. We desire to be individuals, and my prayer is that we would be as a church family those whose lives are built on these values. Jesus promises that those that hear and practice these words will have a sure and steady foundation built upon the rock. This foundation cannot be shaken when the storms of life come to test us. I said this a couple weeks ago, but any other value system that you pursue, here's, here's the problem with it. Let me just give you, there's two big ones. Number one, is the value system wide enough for everyone? Right, Jesus says, Anyone that hears these words and practices them or pursues them or seeks to obey them, anyone is your value system that you've conscripted into your imagination and taken into your heart, is it big enough for anyone, right? Is there enough money to go around, right? Most of the value systems we have taken in and ingested and order our lives around are profoundly exclusive, right? Who has the status and who doesn't? Who's in the inner room and who's not? Who has the money? Who doesn't, right? They're profoundly exclusionary, right? They take people and they put them on the inside and they put them on the outside. Jesus stands up and goes, let me give you a value system that's broad enough for who? Anyone, Anyone who hears these words and does them can come and build their life on a sure and steady rock. That's the first problem with all other value structures. They're not big enough for anyone. The second problem is this. They can be taken from you like that. Here today, gone this afternoon. Later today. Right? If you build it around money, if you build it around status, if you build it around anything else, that thing can be taken from you tomorrow without ever knowing that that's on the horizon. 
can it hold you up in the trials and the storms and the testing of life? Jesus says, this is the way to do that, to have a value system big enough that anyone can come and a value system big enough that it will hold up in the midst of the storms. Letter I, each of these eight markers runs counter to the ways that the world defines success, growth, maturity, and greatness. Because of this, we must intentionally and consistently reorient our lives by God's grace to see these things as blessed in the eyes of God. This takes time, effort, asking the Lord to change us. I have some ways that you can do that under letter J. I'm going to skip through them. Look at Roman numeral three. I want to fly over this. There's, there's some uh, technical arguments in here uh, that I'm just going to fly over. If you want more, I invite you to go through and read through the, the notes here. The big thing that I want to mark around this is how do we understand what Jesus means when he says the word blessed? How do we understand it? Because each of these statements starts with this word, blessed are, right? Like these kind of people are blessed. It's important to understand the meaning of this word so we rightly understand what Jesus is teaching. Now, I want, I, I want to just try to fly over this. I hope, I hope it's uh, uh, concrete enough or cohesive enough. Essentially, in the context that Jesus is speaking in, there is a rich history from the Old Testament around the concept of blessedness, right? But the Old Testament was written in the Hebrew language. There's two words that we get in the Old Testament that our English uh, translates both of them as the word blessed or blessing. One word has to do with the idea of a covenant and when you obey, God will pour out blessing upon you. Right? So in Deuteronomy 28, you can go read it later if you'd like, when the children of Israel are about to go back into the promised land, they retell the law. Moses retells the law to the new generation that's going in. And he stands up and he says, okay, God made a covenant with us. If you obey him, he will bless you in these ways. And if you disobey him, there will be curses that come in response to that. There's, there's this almost if-then relationship. If you obey, God will bless you. And this is about being in covenant relationship with God. That's the first category of a word that gets used as blessed in the Old Testament. The second category of the word isn't about if then, it's a descriptive word. So it'd be like if you were standing over here and you were looking at someone who was doing something and you said, look at that person over there, aren't they blessed? This is kind of like how our commercials work, right? It's not saying if you do something, then something will happen. It's portraying a life that you're going, man, I want that. Look at that life. That's the blessed life. That's the good life. That's the whole life. So we see this, look at Psalm 1 here. This is what happens a lot in the wisdom literature, in the Psalms and in the Proverbs. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, 
but his delight is in the law of the Lord. So what the psalmist is saying is, hey, look at that guy over there that doesn't sit around scoffing people. He doesn't uh, walk in the way of sinners. He sets his mind on the law of the Lord. Look at him. He's a whole person. You find out why he's a whole person later. It's because he's like a tree that's roots gone down deep into the soil and draws upon the water of God's life. But he's describing a person, right? He's not saying, if you do certain things, then God will bless you. He's describing a person that has a whole and full life. So when Jesus comes along and states these things, he is using that second category of statement. It's, this is why it's important. Jesus is not setting up an if-then in the Beatitudes. I want that to really resonate with us. We could read the Beatitudes and go, okay, I'm not experiencing enough of this and this and this and this, so I have to try harder to be poor in spirit. Because if I'm more poor in spirit, then God will bless me. If I'm more merciful with people, he'll show me more mercy. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is not setting up an if-then statement when he puts this in front of us. What Jesus is doing is he's painting a picture of someone who is experiencing wholeness and fullness. And he says, look at this person. They have a whole life. And what's that meant, what's that, what that is meant to do in us is go, I want a whole life. Jesus, would you orient my affections, my desires, my inner workings around what you call whole and good and full? So these are not do this and God will bless you. I just want that to sit on us because you could read through them really easily and go, okay, I've got to try harder to become these things. And that's not what Jesus is inviting us to. Jesus is wanting us to, our imaginations to be captured with his good way and invite us to come close to him in discipleship and say, would you make me more like that? Would you make me more poor in spirit? Would you make me more meek? Would you make me these things? Because I believe, I believe you. I believe that if those things are true about me, my life will be whole. My life will be whole in your eyes. Okay, turn with me to the top of page four. We're going to spend the rest of our time looking at poverty of spirit. These are the things that Jesus says are the values of his kingdom. And we're going to spend the next several weeks walking through these and looking at each of these uh, in depth. But we want to start here because this first statement you could see as the foundation piece or the chief of all of these beatitudes. To be poor in spirit 
is to rightly see ourselves and our need in light of God's great design for us and our own ability to, our, our own inability to attain this. Poverty of spirit, let me just state it very cl- clearly, is how you see. It's all about how you see things. We were created by God for fullness, to live in his presence, to live in relationship with him, to experience the fullness of his life. And because of our sin and our creatureliness, we don't possess in ourselves the ability to attain to that. When we come face to face with that reality, that is poverty of spirit. That's poverty of spirit destitution of soul that says all that God has created me for, I have both disqualified myself from because of my sin and even apart from my sin, because I am a creature, I do not have what it takes to lay hold of the fullness of that. That awareness is poverty of spirit. That awareness is poverty of spirit. To be poor in spirit is to understand and rightly evaluate that we are spiritually poor, not spiritually rich in ourselves. We don't possess in ourselves the means, the power, the virtue, the righteousness, the wisdom to experience and to impart deep spiritual life. We must see our great need for God and his grace to experience the depths of what he's called us to walk in. So I think there's three aspects of poverty of spirit that you could put in here. There might be more, but I think these are three huge categories that when these three things come to us and we shift our mindsets in the way that we see to see this way, this is poverty of spirit. The first thing We are poor in spirit when we see the gap between God's holiness and our sinfulness. When we more clearly see the glory of God and the ways that we have fallen short of his glory through our own sin and rebellion, our hearts are invited into a posture of desperation and need. This is what we see in Isaiah 6. Isaiah 6 sees God, Isaiah the prophet sees God sitting on his throne high and exalted. The train of his robe fills the temple. He sees these angelic beings calling one to another. The one on the throne is holy. He's holy. He's holy. The earth is full of his glory. Isaiah sees this. And in that moment, he understands his own depravity as well. He sees the gap between the righteousness and the purity and the majesty and the grandeur of God sitting on the throne and his sinful rebellion against him. And he goes, woe is me. I'm an unclean man with unclean lips in the midst of a people of unclean lips. That's poverty of spirit. Isaiah sees the holiness of God, his own sinfulness, and the gap between them, he's crushed in spirit. That's one aspect. Paul says it this way in Romans 3, we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. When we come into awareness of that, when we see the 
gap between the glory of God, his holiness, his majesty, his purity, his righteousness, and our sinfulness, that is poverty of spirit. That's poverty of spirit. Second, we are poor in spirit when we see the gap between God's highest purposes for us in Christ and our own ability to attain the fullness of these in our own strength. So from the beginning to the end of the Christian walk is one of dependence and need. We are not only needy because of our sin, but because of our creatureliness. Even even in a state of redemption, right? When Jesus comes and provides for you what you could not provide for yourself, and he provides the righteousness that is required to stand in the presence of God, freely given to you, not because of your work, but because of his. Even in that state, you cannot of your own accord attain to all that has been uh, purchased for you. Right? Paul says in Ephesians 3, he prays for the Ephesians and he says, I pray that you would be filled with all the fullness of God. How can you do that? Even redeemed, even brought into the presence of God, do you have the capacities in yourself to let yourself be filled with all the fullness of God? No. When you understand all that God has purposed for you in Christ Jesus, Paul says it this way earlier in Ephesians 1, every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. Do you have what it takes? Do I have what it takes to attain those in our own abilities? Not at all. When we see that, and we are aware of our inability to lay hold of those in our own strength, that is poverty of spirit. Poverty of spirit is when we see the gap between God's holiness and our sin, and it's the gap between all that God has promised and afforded us in Christ Jesus and our utter inability to attain that in our own strength. You can't do it. I can't do it. You were called, right? In redemption, Peter says that you have been made a partaker of the divine life. That's not just a theological concept, right? You were meant to relate to God and relate to him in a way that you experience his love, experience his delight, experience his joy. I cannot create that in myself, right? I can't make that in myself. I don't have the, the, the wisdom, the intellect, the, the capacity. I do not have that in myself. So the gap there makes me know I am poor and needy and I bring nothing to the table. I am fully dependent upon him to act him to work, that alone. When we come face to face with that, we're poor in spirit. I've got a couple verses there for you to see as well. Number three, the last thing, we are poor in spirit when we renounce our personal rights in response to the call of Jesus and salvation. 
So when we see God's holiness, our sinfulness, when we see the full measure of what God desires to give us in Christ and our inability, we are poor in spirit. But there's another aspect I believe that it means to be poor in spirit. It means that in redemption, when we hear the call that Jesus makes and we respond in faith, we renounce our personal rights and we come to die in order to find life. This stands in stark opposition to the latent self-centeredness that every one of us naturally possesses. Look at Matthew 16 here. Jesus told his disciples, if any of you would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Why? For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So we see those things and we become poor in spirit or we, we, we receive poverty of spirit when those things become more real to us. To be poor in spirit is opposite of the spiritual condition we, saw, we see in the church of Laodicea. They believed they were spiritually rich and in need of nothing. Their wealth, their comfort had deluded them to believe they needed nothing before God. However, the true condition of their lives were spiritually bankrupt before him. Look at Revelation 3. For you say, I'm rich, I've prospered, I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, naked. Jesus is talking to believers here. This is, this is not unsaved people. This is his church. He says, you have all these things and you've deluded yourself to the fundamental reality about you. Remember the first words out of my mouth when I stood on the mountain and talked, blessed are the poor in spirit. You have deluded yourself to believe that you're okay. But this is what's true about you. I invite you, Jesus says, what? To come then and buy from me. Well, how do I buy from you? You just told me I was pitiable and wretched and poor and blind and naked. How do I buy anything? I don't have anything to bring. Exactly. Exactly. You have nothing to bring. That's the only thing you need to recognize that and to come and buy freely from me gold refined in the fire so that you will be actually rich, white garments so that you might be actually clothed and the shame of your nakedness will not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you might actually see. Throughout the scripture, God promised to dwell with those that were contrite in spirit, humble and lowly. This is Isaiah 6, the one that God will look upon, the one who is humble and contrite in spirit. The idea of being poor in spirit cuts against, again, our latent self-righteousness and self-centeredness. We are called not to think highly of ourselves, but to humble ourselves in the sight of God. Turn with me to the top of page six. Roman numeral six, I just outlined like, it should be our vision in life to receive awareness of our poverty of spirit. 
The ways that you do that, the ways that you do that are you fill your mind with the reality of God's holiness, right? You, you ask him to reveal himself to you. You ask him to open your eyes to see him more clearly. You ask him to fill your imagination with more understanding of what he has made available to you in Christ Jesus. And then you ask him for more awareness of your utter inability to lay hold of that. Hey, one of the ways, I'm just gonna throw this in as a side note. One of the best ways to cultivate poverty of spirit, which is cultivating a vision for the fullness of life in God, because then we come face to face with our inability to do it. One of the best ways to do that is go read spiritual biographies, history of revival. Stop looking at people around you Right, like we're, we're, we're in some ways like the blind leading the blind. Like stop looking at our peers and go to people who God has by his grace throughout history allowed to experience things of the depths of his heart and his power and his nearness and let those things saturate your imagination and then you come face to face immediately with one reality. There is no way I can do that. God, I'm poor in spirit. And he goes, blessed. Right where I want you. It's right where I want you. One of the difficult realities, look at Roman numeral seven, of cultivating poverty of spirit throughout this life is there will be a measure of discontent that we experience. There will be a measure of discontent that we experience. I find, this is just like, personal here. I've found that consistently walking in a vision that seeks to cultivate this uh, beatitude, live in line with it, is one of the hardest things to do consistently over time. Do you know why? We hate being weak. We hate being poor. We hate being blind. We hate being wretched, right? I don't like those things. You don't like those things. And so Jesus says, hey, I actually want to invite you into a place where you will come into agreement that when you feel those things, you believe you are in a state of blessedness. And you go, oh, this is really hard, right? I have to keep coming to the place I don't get to graduate past poor in spirit. I don't get to get to this place where it's like, no, 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 I've, I've attained this like spiritual superiority where I'm walking around and I don't have to feel my lack anymore. It doesn't exist. You want to know how I know this? Go read 2 Corinthians chapter 12, 11 and 12. Paul goes, hey, I know a guy that attained to some pretty significant things. He even got taken up into heaven. He heard things that were unlawful for him to repeat. You want to know how he was kept weak? God sent a messenger from Satan to buffet him so that he would not become disconnected from the reality. Blessed are the poor in spirit because when I am weak, then I am strong, Paul says, right? This is what it means to walk as 
one joined to Christ. And it is one of the hardest things to sustain year after year after year after year by his grace. Why? Because we want to we wanna draw back a little bit, right? Because the vision for the fullness that God has for us and our inability or our reality creates discontent in us, right? God, would you release all that you have? And then I walk my normal Monday. And the discontent of that, what am I tempted to do in that place? A couple things. Lower my vision. Yeah, God probably would never do that. God probably would never do that. That's, that's one way we deal with it. Another way is we just start to numb the pain, right? I just check out a little bit. I watch a little more TV. I like try to self-indulge a little more. I want to numb the pain of poverty because it's difficult. And when my heart is not connected to blessed, are the poor in spirit. I am tempted to draw back over time. How do we, in the grace of God, rightly line our hearts up to where when we feel that and when we are with people around us who feel that, we go, hey, that's good. Hey, remember, that's what Jesus calls that good. Jesus calls that good. Jesus calls that blessed. Blessed are you in that place. That's a good place. And here's the problem. We often want to talk each other out of it. We want to talk each other out of what this looks like in our lives. Oh, I feel the ache of like what God would have for me and my reality and my inability to see things conform to what he says, whether that's in my heart or in my family or in my relationships or in my life. I, I'm so uh, desperate for God to move and act. What do we do with each other? We'll often provide each other really, really false comfort, right? We'll soften it a little bit. Hey, maybe, maybe we don't need to have our vision set so high. Maybe, maybe, maybe God would want you to like go, like just chill out a little bit. What would it look like for us as a family to look at each other in those moments and go, hey, blessed are the poor in spirit. Remember, brother, remember, sister, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus has given you his kingdom. Look at letter E, the Laodiceans. Above that we talked about confused their wealth, their status, their ease of life as blessings from God when their hearts were in fact wretched and poor. Oftentimes I find that believers in really prosperous circumstances, myself included, lack this foundational beatitude. This is why if you go and read it in Luke, Jesus just says, blessed are the poor. Blessed are the poor. The tendencies of our hearts to distort and pervert the good gifts of God and use them to cover our feelings of need and desperation is absolutely immense. We have this desire to not be needy. 
And we use all sorts of things to numb us from that. What might it look like in your life if in those places you asked God for the grace to stay right there? To stay right there. Now, grace doesn't make something, it doesn't take the sting of it away necessarily. It just provides help, right? Like the grace of God, I've heard it said, it's like it doesn't make it easy, it just makes it doable. What if in those places we began to ask the Lord, God, this is what you call poor in spirit. Your word says, this is blessed. Would you give me the grace to stay right here? Would you give me the grace to stay right here? To not run and try to solve this pain, to not try to cover it up, to not try to move it around, to not try to lower my vision, to not try to excuse you for why you are or aren't doing anything, but to stay right here. God, would you give me that grace? I got one more little thing to say. And then we'll, we'll, we'll close it out. Sorry, I'm already over. Look at Roman numeral eight. Jesus commanded his disciples to be careful what we listen to or what we accept as the truth and how we evaluate the world. You can read Mark four on your own. But one of the primary ways I think that poverty of spirit is undermined in our contemporary world is through the prolific exaltation of the self. This has become ritualized in our habits and normalized in how we relate to the world around us. This includes our obsession with self-fulfillment. You might think about that in your job or your marriage, your pursuits, right? Like your family life. How am I most fulfilled? Self-actualization and self-realization, right? Like how do I best use my gifts, my voice? my this, my that. You can even put like this overemphasis of self-care in this category. We have listened to this song, self, 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 self. And we've taken it. And Jesus goes, watch out what you listen to. Because what you listen to, you're going to take it in and it's going to make you make sense of how you think about the world and your life will be ordered in accordance to that. And Jesus comes along and he goes, let me invite you to a better way. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Not blessed are those that are self-actualized. Not blessed are those who are self-fulfilled. Not blessed are those who realize the deepest longings of their self. What did Jesus' words in Matthew 16 we look at earlier say? He who finds his life, what? Loses it. He who fulfills himself, what? Ends up getting it now and it's done. How do we find our life? We lay it down for the sake of Jesus. We come and we follow him and we say, your ways are good. 
your ways are right. We line our lives up around that. And then the problem is the second we say we want that, we realize our absolute and utter inability to do it. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Amen. Let's stand. just take a moment to present ourselves to the Lord. Just ask him to speak to us and then we'll come and receive communion together. So Lord, here we are. God, would you speak to us this morning? God, would you give us the grace and the gift of spiritual eyes? God, that we would see reality rightly. God, would you let us see your holiness and our sinfulness. Would you let us see all that you have purposed for us in Christ Jesus and our inability in ourselves to attain that? God, would you let us see rightly that in you, we no longer have personal rights. I actually ask that you would help us see that this morning. God, I ask that you would give us the grace this morning to trust your words as the way to find true life. God, we submit ourselves to you. We submit ourselves to you. Yours is the only way. Yours is the only way. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus understanding that the gap between God's holiness and his righteousness and his righteous requirement and our sinfulness was greater than we could uh, transcend. He took a loaf of bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you take and eat it. And in the same manner, he took a cup of wine and he said, this is my blood, the blood of the new covenant shed for the forgiveness of your sins. Take it and drink. So this morning we're going to come and celebrate the gift of God in Christ Jesus. When we come face to face with our poverty of spirit, we come as those in need and we get to receive freely the gift that he has given, the gift of himself, that he lived the life we couldn't live, he died the death we deserved to, and now he is raised in life forever. If you believe that, you're a Christian and I wanna invite you to come and take communion with us. The way we take communion is we tear a piece of the bread off, dip it in the cup. We have wine in the stoneware, juice in the glassware. We'll have servers up front in the middle and in the balcony. 
And we have a gluten-free station down here to my right, to your left. If you're in this room and you don't put your faith in Jesus, if you're still in that posture of fighting against your own poverty, and you haven't come and received freely of his grace, we wanna ask you not to come and take this meal. This meal is for those who do put their faith in him and him alone. We're really glad you're here. We don't want you to feel like you have to perform or do something uh, to, be, to be received here, uh, to come and do some religious ritual or something. Uh, just stay where you are, stay in your seats. Um, but this meal for those who put their faith in Jesus, we're gonna come and celebrate this now. And as we do every single week, we have ministers in the room that would love to pray with and for you. If your soul is stirred this morning and you're experiencing places where you want to uh, touch more of uh, what God has for you in Christ Jesus, and you're really aware of your inability to do that. We want to ask God to move in those places, to enlighten our eyes, to move among us. We have people that would love to pray with and for you, but the servers are going to come forward and we're going to take communion. You're welcome to come whenever they get set up and ready. Amen.